What we're going to bridge into today is our next lesson, and that as a whole is on the doctrine of salvation. Okay? So, if you just want to kind of use your ears here, let me kind of give you an introductory story so we can kind of get our minds set on the topic here. So when the Philippian jailer asked the question, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas responded with, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Find this in Acts 16.31. Now with the singular straightforward sentence, Paul and Silas present a saving message which would change the Philippian jailer forever. This simple phrase contains words pregnant with meaning. We have believe, Lord, Jesus, saved. Each of these terms gives birth to profound realities, which make striking statements about God, Jesus, man, and sin. Now, accepting salvation is a relatively simple exercise, but understanding the glory and grandeur of this miraculous event will take more than a lifetime. So with this study, we will introduce the glorious truths of our salvation so that we can spend the rest of our lives beholding the wonders of this precious doctrine. So needless to say, salvation is of vital importance to us. And in some shape or form, we probably feel this doctrine a little bit more in a personal way, right? When I think of my children, I have four of them now. If there's one thing of which I wish they would experience in this life, would I want health for them? Sure. Would I want wealth for them? Sure. Safety, protection, all these kind of things that a parent would naturally want. But if there's one cataclysmic thing of which I would desire above all else is that they would come and be saved by the Lord, right? That's the best thing I could possibly hope for. Our son, Will, he's had some very interesting conversations. He's starting to get to that age where he's starting to like understand death, which is kind of hard with a three-year-old, right? It's like, well, how far do you go? Because, I mean, he loses it when he thinks about it, for sure, right? But it's like, it's okay, buddy. But the point of it is, is I'm starting to get excited because he's starting to understand. And then I can start to talk about Jesus, right? And we can start to talk about salvation. We can start to talk about heaven, right? All these things that we can start to bridge into. So it's really exciting as a parent to see that, right? Now, point being is given what we just read and what I've also just read, why else do you think it is of importance that we study salvation? You guys have any other thoughts? Maybe I exhausted the question. So that we know we don't lose our salvation. Exactly. Have God a correct understanding. And we're, for, we're forgiven. I mean, and you can't lose it. Nobody, including the devil, can take it away from you. It's a sure thing. Well, in that verse 1631 said, you and your household, so if, you know, one of your family members becomes saved, it's more likely. And I think there's another verse that says, you can win them with their your acts, and, you know, they can see Christ in you. So if, one, if only one, like if your parents are saved, you're more likely to become saved because you're going to see what that looks like in life and how the Lord blesses you. That divine influence yes. in the house, right? That Christ-like attitude, right? Very good. Yeah. And so we've kind of also bridged into it. Let me just add a little bit more to it. But what can happen if we get it wrong? I think, Judy, you kind of hit it there, right? But what else? What else? What are some other means? If we get this doctrine wrong, what are some possible implications? If we don't understand rightly. I mean, if you're also spreading the gospel, then you're spreading the wrong gospel. Thanks. 
I also think like one of the most terrifying things could be going your whole life thinking you have the gospel right and then you show up and like depart from me I never knew you. Mm-hmm. Hard pass on that one, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's horrifying. It's <laughs> good. Your character in the performance of progress. Uh, the guy he like jumps over the wall mm-hmm. and he's like, Oh it's fine. He like takes the shortcuts. He's like, It's okay, like the Lord like the king just wants me to get to the city, you know? He never, you know, you know, you're taking a long way, and that's great, but, you know, I also have the spirit, and I'm making my way to the city, and he's hopping over. He's, he doesn't think he's wrong. He's fully confident in the fact that he's, he's going to be accepted, in, you know, into the city of the great king, mm-hmm. and he gets there, and, and he's not, you know? He never even had the, the, little, the little piece of paper to begin with. <laughs> That's a good point. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not, if we get salvation wrong, that means that perhaps we're actually not saved because we're not trusting in Jesus as he tells us to. And that also means we're going to live radically frustrated pseudo-Christian lives because we won't have the power to live out the gospel, but we'll just keep trying and trying. And that's a pretty uh, frustrating place to be because salvation actually transforms not only our status with God, but then how we live out our lives. <clears throat> That's a great point. That's really good. Yes. And we re- we need to realize too because some people are taught once you're saved you're always saved and you can go out in the world and live like the Dickens and you're still saved. Mm-hmm. But I would question whether you really are if. Mm-hmm. You can do that because I would think your conscience would Inform you otherwise. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. These are great. Excellent. Yeah. So when we begin to look at salvation, we're going to look at a couple things, right? And I really appreciate what you guys said. That's a loud marker head. (laughs) It's going to happen several times today. Um, Authoritative statement. Yeah. (laughs) So. What I want to kind of do is maybe let's just give you kind of a roadmap of where we're going. Because we're going to be on this, obviously, for the next several weeks here. But I think for me, at the onset, it kind of helps me picture, have in mind, let's kind of look at the roadmap here. Now, I will give the caveat here. This isn't going to necessarily be exhaustive in all respects. And one in particular as we kind of get to our second point today. But you guys will get what I'm getting at here in a second. So what we're going to talk about primarily here is the why we accept salvation. Okay? That's primarily we're going to be honing in today and maybe next week, depends how we do it here. Then we're going to kind of talk about the how we accept salvation. Okay? And then we're going to be finishing up with the what we get. In salvation, which I think is kind of interesting. Usually I don't think in terms of what I receive or what happens to me, but we will be kind of talking about that. Okay? 
So just kind of a basic roadmap. I won't do this every time. Um, hopefully I don't drive you guys nuts. I really like to draw on the board. I think it's because I have a picture-ish kind of mind. Pop-up books are awesome, right? Unfortunately, my kids rip all the pieces out. All right. Yeah. We only got 20. I don't know. If this is the one on the Holy that. Spirit, right? <laughs> okay. So I'll keep kind of watching before I maybe if you're with hit any of you to to read a point here. But okay. So coming back here. The why we accept salvation, how we accept salvation, and what we get in salvation is kind of where we're gonna be going. Now, I'm gonna make just a wee bit more room. It's like, hey I didn't copy that down. It's okay, we'll get there later. Okay? So why we accept salvation. Okay? Why do we accept salvation? Right? I think what we would want to kind of do here is let's start out with this. Okay? And this is your first point if you kind of look. I'm letter A there. We're going to be starting with God's grace shown to us. Okay? Just a second here. There we go. Sorry. It's okay. Next week. Next week. Next week. Bring more. Bring, if you have one, that's the first, That's the only one you get. Whole class break. I'm just kidding. Don't lose. Yeah, don't lose. Right. Okay, so let's start with God's grace, right? Now let's go ahead and just kind of define some terms here. Let me get some input. Just as a general, what do you think God's grace is? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say God's grace? What's your understanding of it? He forgives our sins. Forgives our sins. It's a gift. Good point. Excellent. It's like pardoning someone. Pardoning? Being graceful. Giving them what they don't deserve. What else? God's grace. I'm just spitballing here at the top of my head. But maybe. God's free and unmade. Hey, wait a second. <laughs> Thunder stealer. <laughs> no, you got it, Malachi. Yeah, so I mean, when we're talking about God's grace, obviously the definition you're seeing there I think is very encompassing and good, right? We're talking about God's free and unmerited favor to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. It is the love of God shown to the unlovely. It is reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against him. So I really like the last bit of that definition. When we're talking about God's grace, we have God, right? And then also we have man. And it is that downward motion. I think that puts in our minds the proper place. God is high and lifted up. Does he need to show us grace? I would say no, right? But in his kindness and mercy unto us, he does bestow upon us grace. Free, unmerited Grace, free as we don't necessarily pay God something for it, right? Unmerited as we do not merit it by means of an earning. Okay. Um, second Corinthians chapter five verse twenty-one kind of lays out this grace in the form of a verse <coughs> for our sake. So He didn't have to for our sake. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Yeah. God is a gracious God, isn't he? 
very much is, and I think all of us who have been brought to faith could very much edify that, can't we? Right? So, in light of our sin and rebellion, what do we know we naturally deserve from God? What do we deserve? Judgment. Judgment. Death, right? I mean, that's Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we talk about like with the kids at Adventure Club. seems kind of heavy, but that's where you got to start, right? And so that is the baseline understanding. That's where we stand. That's what we deserve in light of the Holy God, right? But in spite of that, he does show us grace. Now let's kind of expand upon that, okay? I want to talk about two forms of grace, okay? One of the first forms, and you're probably seeing it on your sheet there, so I'm going to make a little bit more room. Okay. God's common grace. Okay? His common grace. Now that you have handouts, <gasps> I can call on some of you. Okay? Can I get a volunteer? Psalms 145, 8 through 9. Anybody? I got you. Thanks, Andy. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. Excellent. Did you catch all the alls there? All. Acts 14, 17. What else? What do we got here? Uh, <clears throat> and yet he did not leave himself without witness. In that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So given what we just read there, and I know you guys could probably cheat, maybe if you could try not to look ahead, or I guess up. What do you think some of this, and let me give you this, the unmerited favor, when we're talking about God's common grace, it's the unmerited favor of God toward all men displayed in his general care for them. When we're talking about general care, does anybody want to take an idea, a rough stab at what we're talking about when we talk about general care for all mankind? Just list me off some things. He takes care of everyone. Those who accept him and those who don't. That's a good point. Exactly. Yeah. And even just, I'll give you, like, what about sunshine, rain, food? These seem like very basic, but when we're talking about God's common grace, that's, I mean, his common grace has massive implications in all of our lives, right? It is very much, and I think in my mind I kind of think of, we have it going to all mankind, right? Hopefully you guys over here can see some of this. If not, I'll try to move. But it's very broad in its scope, right? God bestows this common grace, like what we're talking about, to all of man, to some degree or another, experience having food, having shelter, sunshine, rain, even in the sense of, for instance, like let's say law enforcement, that's a demonstration of God's common grace. Government, right? Now, obviously we could say that in some regards there are bad governments out there, but it is still a restraining effect upon human sinfulness. So we would count that as that. What about family? What about medicine, right? All these things of which he bestows upon us. Kind of an interesting one that I hadn't really thought of, but that was pointed out to me in some of my reading, was there is even an essence of God's common grace that is experienced through us. 
And what I mean by that is that when we, in obedience to him, bless and love those around us, they get to experience that. That would probably be a means of God's common grace. So this is an example of that. Think of um, Potiphar and Joseph in Exodus, right? It says in Genesis 39.5, From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for the sake of Joseph, right? The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So just because God is blessing Joseph, in a manner of fact, that blessing bestows and goes and kind of spills out even onto Potiphar and his possessions. It's pretty very interesting and awesome. I thought that was kind of cool. So common grace has that broad effect to all man. But like Judy just pointed out here, and I think that's a really good point. We read in Matthew 5, 44 through 45. I don't think this one's on your handout here. But it says, For he makes his son, or yeah, for he makes his son rise on the evil and the good, right? And sends rain on the just and the unjust. So you could say that good guys receive this grace and bad guys see this grace if you take it to a very simplistic means, right? So you think of, for instance, like the very evil rich billionaire, right? They may be morally sinful and everything like that, but think of the good things of which they get to experience, right? They wake up every morning. They have breakfast, whatever it be, right? Clothes, home, oxygen, all these things, okay? So we're talking about when we talk about kind of God's common grace. Does that make sense? Kind of exhausted that. Okay. Now, an important piece of common grace is it doesn't change the heart. We have to experience something else. We have to experience a different kind of God's grace for that transformation to happen. And that leads us to our second point there, B, efficacious grace. Okay? Now, when we're talking about efficacious grace, let's put this on the board too. I have to take my paper over. I don't spell well, so it's a weird word to me. Efficacious. There we go. God's efficacious grace. We all experience common grace. We also experience God's efficacious grace. But this has a little bit different angle to it. So let's kind of take a look at the general definition here. When we're talking about his efficacious grace, we're talking about the work of the Spirit, which effectively moves men to believe in Christ as Savior. Right? So John 6, 37. Anybody? Let's try over... Where did our Gabe? Got it. John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Okay. Excellent. About John six forty four, neighboring passage. Get you next time. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. That's right. Unless, right? So we could get a little bit deeper in that, but let's just stick with this here, okay? So when we're talking about efficacious grace, one thing I always seem to have to do is when I'm studying X, Y, or Z thing, 
and they have my Bible next to me and said software program, or maybe it's a commentary, or maybe it's whatever it is, right? Those study materials. Oftentimes, I'm not too far away from a dictionary because those smart guys, they always throw out terms that I'm like, mm. right? And so when we're talking about efficacious, I think it just helps our mind to understand that that word, what we're talking about is we're talking about that producing or capable of producing a desired effect, right? And in this instance, this is God's efficacious grace shown to us for a means of salvation, right? He's doing something. There is an effect involved in this. So then I'll go ahead and do this. This is his grace shown to his elect, okay? And I know that can be a little bit dicey term, but that's probably where we're going next. Ah, preview. Okay, so it is more narrow in its scope, okay? to whom God bestows this particular grace upon. And this one has the effect of changing the heart. Big difference, right? Not everybody receives this kind of grace from the Lord. Okay? Now, now that we've kind of talked about efficacious grace, right? What do you think God is showing us, either about himself or what is his intention? Why... Why? Maybe I'll just state it very simply. Why would he show us this grace? What motivates God to show us his grace at all? What do you think? He, he desires for his children to be holy like him. And that efficacious grace is the means working in their hearts to do so. Mm -hmm. He said, be holy, for I am holy. So. The means by which he makes us holy. That's it, maybe? I don't know if that... Is that what you're... It, it's not completely encompassing. No, it's okay. I think that's part of the puzzle of it. I don't know. So why would God show us grace? Ephesians 2 says that God is rich in mercy. And I want to say that because of the great love which you loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Like that kind of comes full circle. Mm -hmm. He's merciful. Absolutely. Yeah. I think something important to notice is um, in the entire Old Testament, and especially throughout—I mean, through the through the creation of like the law. Um, God was highlighting to us and, and to the Israelites and to the world, but you know, as we read the Bible to us, mm -hmm. um, that He could give us every single step we need to take to be good, and we would still fail. Like it's it's He gave us the, the blueprint. He said, "Look, you want the, the rules mm -hmm. to salvation? Here are the rules to salvation." And even with perfect understanding and a perfect presence of mind as to what we needed to do to be saved, and I say we because we all know we would do the exact same as the Israelites, like humanity we still failed, you know um, and so that's why it's important for God's grace because he's, he's shown us, he's taken hundreds of years like of patience to show us how deeply, you know he could give us everything we need and we would still we would still botch it up, so that that's why God's grace is important because He's shown us we can't live without it. Not of ourselves. Exactly. I think also because, you know, our 
salvation and the grace that he gives us brings glory to God. I think that is the ultimate reason that we, we receive those is because it's bringing God glory. Absolutely. I think that's an excellent point. These are all good answers, by the way. But I think when we're talking about that, take a look at the relevance to salvation. Because with that mention of glory, I think that's what we're starting to get into here, right? So for all of eternity, God has existed in absolute and glorious perfection. And while he did not have to create the human race, he chose to do so to bring him pleasure and delight. He desires to place his glory on display so that all of his creation will fall before him and admire his greatness. God's decision to send a savior to mankind was not rooted in our value, right? We botch it up, like what you said, Malachi, right? From his perspective, we are ungrateful, unworthy, and undesirable rebels whose hearts are filled with malice and envy. We aspire to rule our universe, control our destiny, and redirect all glory due to God to ourselves. Reminds me a lot of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Trying to take control. Clearly, God does not need us, nor would he desire us based upon our own merits. The miracle of salvation necessitates a work of grace. Titus 3.5 he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by washing of regeneration and renewal, renewing by the Holy Spirit. So given this Titus passage, maybe try and take another look at it. According to this passage, what compels God to save us? Kind of already hidden at it. We've already listened to it a second ago, right? But according to his what? Mercy. Right? According to his mercy. And what's the one thing we always have to keep in mind about mercy is mercy is not owed. Right? If my child does something and I show them mercy, right? It's not because they I owe it to them to show mercy. But I freely give it to them. I'm giving them what they don't deserve. Right? So Mercy is a note. Mercy is giving someone what they don't deserve. Now, salvation, like we're kind of hitting at here, is that it's rooted not in ourselves, but it's in God and his character. We are saved because he is worthy, not because we are valuable. I was like, I think you guys have probably heard it too. If I'm quoting him incorrectly, here we go. But I think Pastor Dave always says, right, he loves us in spite of us, right? And I remember the first time you told me that, I was kind of like, what? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Then after I think about it, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, that doesn't make sense, right? It's a poignant, poignant thing to keep in mind, right? It reminds me of, you know, when you're a kid and your parents tell you you can't have something, and you're like, I hate you, and your parents are like, yeah, well, we love you anyway, so. That never happened, did it? It was the other kid. And you get disciplined for saying I hate you. (laughs) 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 He wasn't owed to show you mercy in that. I mean, well, Jason, you did touch on something just now that I haven't mentioned earlier, which is God loves us in spite of ourselves. But so one of the reasons He gives that grace is because of His love. Because He he loves us. Romans five eight. God demonstrates His love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sometimes we kind of can forget that element of God deeply and profoundly loves us. Yeah. And that drives, is one of the things that drives all of this grace extended. Yeah, yeah and, and I think there's like, uh, we can still embrace 
the, the truth that, yeah, we weren't worthy. Yes, we were dead in our trespasses. And that, that, that truth is, is present at the same time as of this profound love. Like, he doesn't Absolutely. love us because we're worthy, but he, lo- but he loves us. Mm-hmm. How's that work, right? Yeah. yeah. That's incredibly important. Sometimes, too, when we think about God's motivation, it, it's tempting to, to say that whatever, that something's primary, and so therefore mm-hmm. it's not the other things. Mm-hmm. And really, it's, God, you know, it's God's deep, profound love for us and his desire to share his glory, you know, to be glorified, because that's the most loving thing for all of creation, to know him. So it's, it's all those things working together. And mm-hmm. we say, is it his love? Is it his mercy? Is it grace? Is it his glory? It's really saying it's this or that. It's, it's all those working together. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, they can help us magnify his love and mercy and his glory all at the same time. All those things only make it better. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely true. Yeah. And that is something as we've been studying, it's like, oh, where does his love in in this equation, right? Because there are verses that plainly tell us that he loves us. Great points. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how about this? How can works, what we do, lead to boasting? How can that make us boast? What do you think? By comparing ourselves to someone else by saying, oh, I do more for the church than you do. Or whatever it will be that you feel that you are contributing more and that puts you above other people, which is not what we're supposed to be doing. Ourselves out there. Or the reversal of that, right? right? I'm not as good as that person. I must... Something's eh. yeah. it's definitely like usurping hierarchies of like what I have done and what God has done. Yeah. I think it's a natural thing to think, you know, you do something, you get this in return. I mean our whole lives are everything with work and I mean most things in our culture is that way. So it's it's easy to think, you know, as your kid you obey your parents. You cause them less strife. Like, whoo, that's good. Like, and it's easier for them to love you. You work harder. You get paid more. Yeah. You know, it's that's all how you think about everything. So it's it's a natural thing to do it that way. Um, so I think it's it's hard to combat that a little bit within the just because everything in our life is right directed that way. It's a natural means, especially I think in our society that we think of things of earning. Right? I do X. I earn Y. Our kids are getting into that kind of mode where we're starting to kind of pay them for jobs kind of thing so we can start to teach them about money and stuff. And William still thinks a quarter will buy his giant T-Rex. I was like, oh, so much money. But you're right. I mean, there is that notion of, you know, work and earn kind of thing. It is kind of ingrained in us, I think. Yeah. Yes, there's also a subtle way I think we as Christians can do that. We may not use the term works, but we very easily start thinking that we're better in the non-believing world. Um, there's something about us, we, we can look down on those who don't know the gospel, who have rejected the gospel, or are living sinful lives, and what we're actually suddenly saying is, I'm better than them. I did something better than them. 
Yeah. And, and so we take upon this attitude, instead of us being like them and being grateful for the grace extended to us and trying to extend that grace to them to the degree that we can by living out and sharing the gospel, we actually sit in, in judgment and look down on them as if uh, yeah, we deserve something. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, that temptation I see it, you know, uh, if, you, if you are commonly or work in a place that's not, you know, Christian ministry or I- anywhere, you have a tendency like um, the Pharisee that welcomed Jesus in, right, and didn't really, he didn't really appreciate all that, who Jesus was, and you have this sinful woman mm-hmm. who knows, and Jesus kind of points out through that parable, like, who, yeah. who loves more, one who's free, and so there's a sense in which when we forget that we've been forgiven just as much or more, right, that, than, than all those around us who don't know Christ, um, we lose sight of that grace, right, that, yeah. So it's a great sinner that has a great savior. Yeah, I think what you guys are pointing out, I'm trying to remember. I think it's Colossians. No, I'm not going to quote it, but such were some of you, right? Like we forget what we were before he intervened, right? And so if I go back in time, I can remember it's like, yeah, <laughs> you weren't so grandy, right? Still not. A lot of work to be done. Excellent point. I think that also leads us to then also be able to be more effective in our outreach with others. If we're humble, remember it's like, I don't look at that person that, say, I'm trying to evangelize to as, oh, they're down here, they're so uninformed, whatever. It's like, but for the grace of God, there go I, right? That would, that, that's me, isn't it? Right? Puts us in our place. Good. I think it's really hard to operate out of grace. As believers, I mean, it's it's really hard to do that. It's really hard to love somebody that's hard to love. It's really hard to care for someone that doesn't get it. I mean, it's really hard to be kind to someone that's rude to you. But like, that's what we're called to operate out of grace. But I just <laughs> I think it's worth noting that it's not easy. Yeah. And it's only because of Christ that we can see to operate that way. But I think as we were just talking, it's also important to remember that that was you at one point. Mm-hmm. An unbeliever who wasn't, you know, always nice or, you know, didn't get it. So it's, I think that that brings some humility to it when you think of it uh, in that way, that we all came from that. Mm-hmm. Also, I think, Jason, you read earlier for, for God's common grace from Matthew 5, uh, 45, where he makes the sun rise and fall on the evil and on the good. But right before that, the reason he's telling us that is he says in verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So actually it's this common grace that actually pushes us to extend that loving grace towards our enemies in a really transformative way, in a way that really strangely connects common grace with how we're supposed to live out our lives of grace. Thanks. Yeah, that's always a hard one, right? Like, pray for my enemies. That's not my knee-jerk reaction. Okay, mm-hmm. confessional here, right? Maybe it's just me. I remind you of fame, too, that some of the people that dislike a person immensely, if you cannot verbally communicate with them because of that strike, I have found that I have a lady that does not like me intensely. I would 
communicate with her that she has no desire and I have found that since I have started praying for her and I'm still praying for my sister's husband uh, that the strife is lessening in those areas they still speak but that's okay because it's the strife that's lessening and I don't know if because I don't know God's heart I'm not he and he could possibly be working on their hearts because uh, this one particular person other people in the building have noticed that she's not as nasty sometimes as she has been. So I feel that maybe God's working on her. I don't know. It's amazing where you see things crop up. And you're like like I say, I don't know, you know, his yeah. will or what he, you know. We make that prayer, and then it shows up in a way of which we didn't expect it to. Right. And then you see it, and you're like, wow, that was, God worked that. Right. That's the answer to that prayer. I did not think it was going to turn out that way. It may not, may not be 100% yet, but if it's there, the power of prayer is a mighty, it's a mighty weapon against Satan. Yes. Well, did I see I was just going to add to that. I think the key is to what we're all saying is realizing it's not us. We can't do this in ourselves. It has to be the Holy Spirit, our surrendered life. What it means, what Jesus said, take up our cross daily. Surrender to Him. Realizing, like Isaiah, bowing down. I'm a man of unclean lips. And our availability, rather than our ability, is the key to understanding giving God glory and doing all this Christian life we just can't do it by ourselves. Absolutely. Very good. Very good, very good, very good. Yeah, and I mean, I think looking at this next question as well, right? Let's kind of bridge into the given our nature apart from Christ, do you think it's even possible to be saved apart from total grace. It's kind of a little bit weightier one. Okay? Let me see it again. Given our nature apart from Christ, is it even possible to be saved apart from total grace? No. Cool. There you go. No. Another rebuttal to that? Anyone? Okay, that was the easy question. Okay. No. Right? No. We don't have anything to offer. He, he loved the world so much that he gave his only son. So that gift of grace was out of his love for us, and we couldn't do anything to warrant it. We did everything opposed to it. He did it nonetheless because that's who he is. Right. As God. He's everything we're not. So yeah, I mean, when we kind of bridge into that word of nature, right, I think that's an important piece. 
because we learn from Ephesians 2, 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by what? Nature. Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There it is. Exactly. That's where we stand, apart from God and his intervening grace, right? With his love. Stand on what he said, that God gave his only son for a sacrifice for us. Jesus Christ also willingly gave his life in obedience to his Father for us, knowing that he was dying for all our sins. And he was a righteous man. Yeah, Yeah, and I think, sometimes I think when I think on those kind of things, I sometimes wonder if, like, this side of eternity, I'm not going to fully get it, am I? Until I'm before him, and I see and understand the cataclysmic effect and massiveness of my sin in parallel with his grace and mercy and love towards me. There's, there's a reason we're going to be singing for thousands of years, isn't there? Right? <laughs> it's going to be amazing. And there's going to be a reason why he deserves all the glory, isn't it? Right? So, very good, very good, very, very good. Okay, 10 minutes. This is going to be good. This is great, because I'm going to bridge into like one of the like most cataclysmic, in my mind, potentially sometimes controversial doctrines. So this is perfect time for it. We'll just change this, no problem. Excellent. We're gonna have to like just recap this next ten minutes the next time. So all right. So, so oh, think about here. Yeah. Here we go. Election. Right? So ten minutes, ready, go. Alright, so we have God's grace, and we were talking about that in our salvation. But we also need to have a chat about election, right? Obviously, this is a very, very big topic. Now, I do want to give the pretense here that in in our study here, this isn't going to be exhaustive. We're going to kind of, you know, cruise over it at a high altitude. We're not going to delve into every little nuance because I think we actually do that in another unit in this class. I think it might be under, like, God's providence. I'd have to ask Dave and Scott and see where that one crops up. But that's where we kind of, like, go hard into it. But when we come to our salvation, we also need to have a talk about it, right? I think one thing when, uh, that I've learned about election is that, yes, it can be divisive, but it doesn't have to be. I think a lot of that rests with our disposition towards it when we enter into those conversations. Case in point is me, right? So I was not exposed to this doctrine early on. We would probably say if I had to get technical, I kind of came, Lauren and I, during our college years, we had a 10-year stint in the Kansas City area. And we were very much part of kind of a more Arminian sway. This doctrine was not taught or really touched. And if it was touched, it was usually not favorably seen upon, right? Now, I would be very much interested, given now what I know, to go back and to have further conversations. I think that's really good. But I was of what they called the, like, cage the Calvinist when I discovered this, like, in our men's Bible study and stuff. I was hot and ready. And let's go. Didn't even know the scriptures, which is really bad. Don't have a conversation that way until you look at the word of God, right, and humble yourself. 
But I was just ready to go and let's fire out the shoot and let's let's go. Let's do this. And I did a lot of wounding. And it's things of which now I deeply regret. Because those conversations that I could have had, which could have been a very loving and charitable way, and in a give and take, by the way, I didn't have those. So what I was stupid. Right? <laughs> there you go, right? So I would take that back in a heartbeat. So when we're talking about election, though, I think it does behoove us to kind of put on our guardrails in the regards of look at Scripture, humbly come before it, and what God says is what God says. Now, this also isn't something that we would have that debate and we would point the finger at the person who doesn't agree with this doctrine and say, you're not saved, right? Now, obviously, there are some extents that if we go to really hard parallel or uh, polar opposites kind of thing, but as a whole, it's not a... Salvinic issue. I don't know if that's the correct word, right? So we need to be very charitable. Okay, now that I've kind of like prefaced this, let's just kind of bridge into this. Let's talk about some of these scriptures here, okay? But first, let me give you a definition. So election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure, okay? So, scriptures here. Let's start with Acts 13.48. Got a volunteer, anyone? If you're there, I see some of the front row there getting their Bibles ready there. Joshua, do you have that? Sure. 13.48. Uh, 13.48, please, Acts. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Good. How about Romans 8? 28 through 30. Well, thank you. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he forgave, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Good. Absolutely. Romans 9, 11 through 13. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who called, she was told, The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. That verse right there in this doctrine usually is a giant source of contention and needs a lot of unraveling. It's good that we look at it. Okay. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Okay. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. I love the tail end of that verse, right? To the praise of his glorious grace, right? I always love that. So, needless to say, election is in the scriptures. And if we're going to be faithful to the scriptures, in some shape or form, eventually we're going to have to deal with this, right? I've heard it said this way, if you're not going to deal with election, if you're going to basically put on the blinders 
of your biblical reading glasses and not deal with it, you might as well have a Sharpie as your highlighter in your Bible, right? It's going to come up, so let's talk about it, right? Um, kind of before we close here, I don't think we're going to fully get into some of the common misunderstandings. We'll save that for next week, but if there's one other kind of uh, series or resource I would point you towards, um, Josh Mills, I don't know if that name pops up. Some of you guys are very familiar with him. He will come and he'll speak at our Ironman, or he and Dave sometimes will do the pulpit swap, right? And we'll get to have him. I really enjoy him. I think he's a great teacher. Um, he's out of Cornerstone Bible Church. I'm going to put his name up there. I told him I was referencing this, but I think he'd be fine with it anyways, because I told him I like this series. So he has a series called Amazing Grace. And if you go to their website, you can find that. And it is a, I think it has six or eight sessions on it, six or eight sermons. Amazing Grace. And if you searched, it's in the August, I think it starts 27, so I think we're going to get rid of that on the lefty. Um, August of 2021, Cornerstone Bible Church. If you guys ever wanted to kind of have something, you know, if you can be at work, plug something in your ears. Um, of course, sometimes it gets kind of deep, so you might not be paying attention too heavily. So, you know, make some space. Great resource. It's really helped me and informed me. He does a great job kind of going back into the histories. What I'm guessing I'm pointing at is if you'd like a little bit more in-depth than what we're going to go towards, it's a good resource. And I've found him to be monstrously helpful. I think he gives a fair analysis, without a doubt. Um, and I think he's just faithful to the word, right? Okay. So, with that, and then we're going to get preparing for service today here. So let's go ahead and we'll pick up on common misunderstandings, all right? Well, Father God, we do thank you very much for this time. Lord, as we learn about your grace, it really is amazing grace. And Father God, we're so grateful for it. Lord, we didn't deserve it, and yet you showed it to us. You were working within your love for us, which is in and of itself amazing. And Lord, may we never forget these things. Help us to not be blind towards these things. Help us to continue to learn and to glorify you. Father God, please help us to now go from here, go into service, and to rightly worship and give you glory. Please be with all of those who are serving, whether it be in the preaching, Father God, um, or in the music, or leadership, whatever it may be, so that we as a whole of your body, Lord God, would rightly worship you. We love you, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.